Let, let me preach to your hearts this morning, if I may, and, and we'll do that from 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Open your Bible or your tablet, get it ready. Uh, when we get to that passage, we're going to spend quite a few moments just reading, and I'm going to make commentary on the passage as we read through it. So be ready to look, spend some time looking at that, starting in 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8, as you can see on the screen behind me. But in the meanwhile, I want to begin with some introductory remarks that will help us, I think, to understand the Scripture better when we get there. Now, last week, I spoke to you about the dark ages that lie ahead for the church, and I suggested a way for churches to stand together as Canadian governments. And I'm talking about the federal, provincial, and municipal. All of them seem to be coming against God's people and against the church. And I, I suggested a way last week for us to stand together as these governments become increasingly hostile toward Christ and his followers. But today, I want to speak to you personally. I need to ask a question. What will happen to your confession when the going gets rough? Individually, you need to answer the question. What's going to happen to your confession? Here's the problem. Everyone wants the church to stand for Jesus, to stand for righteousness and so forth. But that can't happen unless individual members. In fact, I want you to personalize it. You need to say, my church cannot stand for Jesus in tough times unless I'm willing to stand for Jesus in tough times. Individual members need to be willing to stand on their own in the tough times. Proverbs 24.10 says, If you do nothing in a difficult time, your strength is limited. Now that's the Hallman Christian Standard Bible. That's the translation that we've been using around here for the last several years. But I still remember, and actually in this case, not, not usually, but in this case I prefer the wording from the old King James Version, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. God help us not to faint. God help you. In fact, turn it into your own prayer. God help me not to faint in the day of adversity. God help us to stand firm and to keep making the good confession when the waters rise against us. And, and may God help us to remember that if we turn to him in such times, he will give us strength. I love Isaiah 40. I, I loved it all my life. And we've turned it into a gospel for us. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and so forth. But uh, it really came to me with fresh power a number of years ago when it was read at a climactic moment in the movie Chariots of Fire, and I've never forgotten it since. But Isaiah 40, 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary. That's unusual, but it actually can happen that even young people can become faint and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not faint. So God help us not to faint on the day of adversity. Spiritually speaking, Tough times are not just coming. They are on us already. Spiritually speaking, we're into the tough times. In fact, it's during the, the softer attacks by the devil that, that we could maybe even say the times are the toughest of all because then the temptation to be seduced to go with the crowd is stronger than ever. 
So in these tough times that we're in, one of the enemy's chief weapons is to make each one of us feel that we are all alone, like like you're the only one left. Let me tell you, if you stand up for Jesus, you are never alone. You can count on one thought, and that is if you're standing for Jesus, he's standing with you and for you. But even on a larger level, there, even when we start to feel utterly alone, we're not really alone. Remember Elijah? He flees to Mount Sinai. He cries out to God that all the people have broken the covenant and I alone am left. And God reminds him that there were still 7,000 men and women, 7,000 souls in Israel who had never bowed the knee to Baal, who had remained faithful to Yahweh, holy God. Now let me talk to you for a moment, if I may, about the title of today's message, Faith Beyond Belief. Most of you have probably already said to yourselves, isn't this the name of the organization that Pastor Schaefer is going to work for? And of course it is, Faith Beyond Belief. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about what these words mean? That is, what is a faith that is in some sense beyond belief? I don't know if you've thought about it or not, but I hope you have. And some of you are probably even asking, though, is there really a difference between faith and belief? And the fact is, there is a difference between these two things. Belief has to do with the mind, what you think is true. And the problem is that what you think or or what you want to think, and that's a very important addition here, what you want to think is true may have nothing to do with truth or reality. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Someone may say to himself, I don't like to work hard, so I'm going to tell myself that success is accidental. It happens to some, and it doesn't happen to others, and nothing I do will make a difference. That's one example of a belief that simply does not fit with the facts of life. But here's another example that I want to give you, if I may, and I think this one is closer to the issue at hand. Now, you can see it's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon, but I'm not sure that it's large enough print for you to read it for yourself, so I'll just take a moment here. Let's see. if I got... Is that working? No, that's the wrong... There we go. There we go. So I'll just read the panels for you, if I may. In the first one, Calvin walks up to Hobbes, the tiger, and he says, well, he says, I've decided I do believe in Santa Claus, no matter how preposterous he sounds. And Hobbes asks him, what convinced you? Well, a simple risk analysis. I want presents, lots of presents. Why risk not getting them over a matter of belief? Heck, I'll believe anything they want. Hobbes says, how cynically enterprising of you. (laughs) And Calvin finishes with, it's the spirit of Christmas. Yeah. As you can see then, Calvin believes in Santa Claus because he thinks that will bring him more presents. But really, he's ready to believe in anything that will bring him presents. Uh, if, it, if it'll bring him more presents, he'll believe in the man in the moon or the great pumpkin or, or, or even God, if he thinks it's going to bring him more presents. A lot of people approach Christianity like that. I'll believe in God as long as I have hope that God is going to come through for me. But if God doesn't come through, then I'm done with him. I'll believe in something else. Needless to say... True Christian faith is altogether separate from all such forms of false belief. In fact, the Bible almost never speaks of belief. 
You could even argue that it deals exclusively with faith, which is an active, life-transforming force. Beliefs about going with the flow. Faith gives you the strength to swim against the tide. Belief is compatible with the broad way that leads to destruction that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 7, 13. Everybody is going to hell on that broad way, and yet they go down that road, down that slippery slope, continuing to believe in something, and most of them will tell you that they believe in God. But their belief means nothing, neither to themselves nor to God. Faith, on the other hand, keeps your feet strong on the narrow and difficult road that leads to life. For what it's worth, the word belief is found only once in the Hallman Christian Standard Bible and very few times in other translations as well, but the only time it's found in the HCSB is at 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And even there, it doesn't mean what it seems to mean, at least at first glance. Let me show you what I mean. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, you'll see it on the screen behind me. And here's what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says, But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That's the only time that word belief is found in this translation. For whatever reason, the translators felt that belief would work better than faith in our English translation, but if you check the original language, the inspired Greek word, the word Paul actually wrote down as he was led by the Holy Spirit, is faith, meaning the Thessalonians have a moral conviction about who Jesus is. They are fully persuaded that what they believe is true, accompanied by an equally strong conviction that opposing contradictory views are not true, that is, false. And they have also come to rely, that is, they've, they, in their lives, they've come to rely upon what they believe, and their lives are characterized by a constancy in professing that one faith. All the important words in these sentences that I'm sharing with you just now, all of them come out of the lexicon explaining what the word faith means. So moral conviction, fully persuaded, uh, relying upon, constancy in professing that one faith. Related words include um, having assurance that in Jesus they've got hold of the truth, thus making their lives to shine with fidelity or faithfulness to what they believe. Now such faith cannot be sustained unless it is based upon truth what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth, truth that is connected with reality. Think about the just-so stories, the fairy stories, the atheists tell one another about the origin of matter or the beginning of life. Uh, it, you know, it's all, they tell you these long, complicated stories, but when you really winnow out the meaning, they're just telling you that it all happened accidentally. So that when their beliefs are examined with the fully opened eyes of faith, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. But I'll tell you this, we have to cry when we hear the abortionists declaring that there's nothing wrong with what they do. Why do we cry? Because faith informs us that reality includes a time when God will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And when that happens... Unbelievers will be, and I'm, I'm thinking of uh, and, and reading out of uh, Revelation 22 here, when the new heavens and the new earth come, unbelievers will be left outside in a place of torment. The Bible makes clear who's going to be left outside. There's a list. 
in verse 15 of chapter 22. The sorcerers, that is people involved in witchcraft, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So unless such people repent and believe, they will all perish forever. A perishing that is forever. A perishing, think about it, always dying. A perishing that is forever. This is the fate of those who live and, and their lives without repentance and without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our hearts mourn, we weep, we, uh, we cry for those who think they're okay when we know that they're not okay. They're not even standing on a knife edge. They are done unless they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to today's text, but just by way of introducing the particular text from 1 Peter, I'll remind you that he's writing to Christians shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now you would think he would cut them some slack. As you would think Peter would cut the, the Christians of that era some slack because they were facing persecution like nothing you could ever imagine. I'll tell you how bad it got. Back in Matthew 24, as Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, in verse 21, he calls what was going to happen to Jerusalem a great tribulation. Again, I'm quoting from Jesus, the kind that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now, that is, the time of that generation that would experience those things that Jesus is talking about in 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. Nothing the Chinese Christians are facing today. Now, remember last week we made an issue out of the, the persecution the Chinese Christians are facing. Nothing that they're facing today, nor anything that you or I will ever face in our lifetimes, will compare with what those first century Christians went through. Yet, as you're going to see, Peter held these people, these believers in Christ, these professors of faith in the Lord Jesus, he held them to a high standard. Let's start with 1 Peter 3.8. Now finally, all of you should be like-minded and sympathetic, should love believers and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you are called for this so that you can inherit a blessing. Giving a blessing so you can inherit a blessing. We hear an echo from the Lord's Prayer, do we not? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and so forth. You need to have the Sermon on the Mount in your mind throughout this passage. And I'll say more about that as we get a little deeper into it. Verse 10, for the one who wants to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And he must turn away from evil and do what is good. No matter how awful you're being treated, no matter how rough the persecution you're enduring, you're still to turn away from evil and do what is good. He must seek peace and pursue it because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their request. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. And now we come to verse 13 and uh, there's a question here that I want to spend a few moments answering. The question is, and who will harm you if you are deeply committed to what is good? We need to just pause and ask ourselves, why did Peter put it in the form of a question? He wanted them to think about it. He wanted his readers, he wanted us to think about the answer. He didn't want to just hand it to us on a platter. I'm going to hand it to you on a platter, but he wanted us to think about it. So here it is. Here's here's the answer to the question. Who will harm you if you're deeply committed to what's good? If you become the Christ-like person that Peter has just described, starting back in verse 8, going down through verse 12, 
If you become the Christ-like person that Peter has just described, the answer is almost nobody who knows you will want to harm you. Just pause and think about that for a moment. Almost nobody. The neighbors, they may be unbelievers, they may even be fairly licentious, loose-living, God-dishonoring people in their personal lives, but they're not going to harm you if you have loved them, if you have shown love to them. So almost nobody who knows you, if you've lived according to verses 8 through 12, almost nobody is going to want to harm you. Even in tough times of persecution, it will probably require an outsider to do you any real harm. Let me give you an example. All of us, I think most of us in this congregation know Lily Chow, who's with the Evergreen Medical Mission in, uh, in China, deep in the interior of China, and she's been ministering there for a number of years. Remember that that entire mission team is in that part of China because they were invited there by the local officials who remembered the blessings of the missionaries who had ministered to them way back in the early part of the 20th century. And so they begged the children of those missionaries, please come back, please reestablish the mission, please minister to us again as you did as your parents did before. And so here they are in China because of their ministry of love, because of their preaching a gospel of love, because of their reaching out to the people in China, the local officials invited them back to that part of the country. Listen carefully. In the coming days, as persecution grows against Christians, and it's happening now and it's going to happen even more openly as the days go by, As persecution grows against Christians, we need to love our neighbors, meaning real friendliness and sacrificial service toward our neighbors, offered in such a way that they begin to feel protective toward us. Let me give you a real-world example. Again, you'll remember that possibly eight or nine, maybe, maybe ten years ago, I don't think it was that far back, seven or eight years ago, I think, we had here in our pulpit, an associate pastor from the Kasser El Dabara Evangelical Church, which is the largest evangelical church in the, in the Muslim world, and it's found right in the center of the city of Cairo. And so a few years ago, the Muslim Brotherhood determined they were going to burn the church to the ground. And yet they couldn't because the Muslim neighbors who lived around the church loved the people of Christ so deeply that they filled the streets for the purpose of keeping the Muslim Brotherhood away from the building. They couldn't get near enough to do it any harm. Why am I telling you that story? I'm saying this is how we're to live in tough times. So that people have to come from far off, people who don't know you, that, that if, they, if the order just comes down from headquarters to the local sheriff or the local policeman or whatever it is, you need to go and arrest Mr. and Mrs. X because they're Christians, he's going to say, nothing doing, because I love those people, and I know they love me. I'm not going to touch them. You'll have to come from somewhere else if you're going to get those people arrested. So now we move to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Even if you should. Remember, I I want you to keep thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. These are the same words that Jesus used when he gave the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And from personal experience, Peter was well aware that godly people can and will suffer specifically for their righteousness. That's a key thought. Peter goes on to say, do not fear what they fear. That is, do not fear what unrighteous people fear or be disturbed. Now, I need you to follow with me just really closely here. Notice what our translation says. Do not fear 
what unrighteous people fear, what they fear. That's a good literal translation, and you find it in other literal translations such as the King James Version and so forth. Do not fear what they fear. But the English Standard Version translates it for us a little further and says, have no fear of them, that is the unrighteous people. Now at first, that seems like a a different statement, right? Do not fear what they fear, have no fear of them. Those don't sound like the same thing. And yet, they're getting at the same truth. What Peter is doing is he's saying that ungodly people will persecute Christians by trying to scare them with the things they fear. But Christians should not be afraid because we fear God. Let me give you some examples. First, they'll try to laugh at us. We're going to laugh at you. Now, that's frightening to a person who depends upon the crowd for self-esteem. People of the world, what do they depend on? They depend on other people for their self-esteem, for their sense of well-being. They're desperate for your approval. That's why they work so hard to get us to tick the box to a a test that we're affirming the government's position on abortion, on homosexuality, on other forms of perverse sexuality. Do you hear what's happening? Mr. Trudeau, sitting in his mansion in Ottawa, is nervous. It disturbs him. It frightens him that people disagree with him. He's desperate for your approval. And he thinks he can scare you if he laughs at you because he thinks you're just as desperate for man's approval as he is for man's approval. Are you making, you following the, the logic here? So, ha, we don't care about man's approval. The Christian is interested in God's approval. Here's another one. We're going to take away your property. Ooh, that's scary. That's scary for those who've never heard Jesus say, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6.33, you know the scripture already. How about this one? We won't let you earn degrees at our universities. If you don't tick the box and approve of what we're teaching, you can't get a degree here. Now, this could be especially disturbing for some Christians unless you're seeking what Jim Elliott called the AUG degree, the approved unto God degree. And so we can let the degrees go. We don't have to have them. No matter how scholarly we may be, you don't have to be degreed to be scholarly. You can study without getting a degree. Or what about this one? If you do not do what we say to do, we're going to kill you. This is the greatest fear of those who don't know Jesus. This life is all they have, and so death is their greatest fear. But to believers, and again, I'm quoting from Philippians 1, to die is gain. So we're not afraid. Now these things, and more, really do scare unbelievers. But Christians should not be so easily frightened. We move on to verse 15. But honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Now, in verses 14 and 15, and you can rescan them for yourself, Peter is clearly quoting from Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. Let me read those verses to you now. Do not call everything an alliance, these people say is an alliance. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Do not, I'm sorry, do not be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of hosts as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. Every now and then, I'll use the word awesome, and somebody will remind me, only God is awesome. They're right. 
And this is the verse from which, which that comes. Now we move on, still in verse 15 of 1 Peter 3. Always be ready to give a defense. The Greek word there is apologia. You can hear apologetics in that word, can you not? Always be ready to give a defense, an explanation, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now you're, you're saying, how does apologia, apologetics, in modern terms, modern language we, we speak of apologies, how does that become a defense? Have you ever noticed that? Now originally it meant just giving a defense. That's all it meant. It didn't mean what we mean by apology. But have you ever noticed that almost all apologies are accompanied to one degree or another by a defense? Uh, for example, I'm sorry I was late to work this morning. There was a huge accident. Traffic was backed up for 10 miles. You know, and, and so you're giving a defense. You're, an ex, you're explaining even as you're apologizing. And, and so a number of things. I could give you lots of excuses or lots of examples, but you, you can follow along. So apologia means defense. So give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, verse 16, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping your conscience clear, so that when you are accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You'll notice Peter keeps bringing this up, that it may be God's will for you to suffer for doing good. He's done that at least twice in this passage and elsewhere in his epistle. Now, verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. And I just want you to think about this one thought as we move toward the rest of the message. If Christ suffered for us, how dare we think it unfair or too hard if we should be asked to suffer for him. Now, this brings us to the last part of the message, and I want to kind of close with this rather quickly, but let's take our minds back to verse 15, if I may. In your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense, an apologia, an explanation to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And I want to ask the question, why would anyone ask you about your hope? Have you ever read this passage and said, to, said, I'm not sure anyone has asked me about the hope that I have? Why would they raise that question what, about your hope? Let's, let's think about that for a moment. Because if they see you loving people who don't love you, they're going to wonder about your hope. If, if you are willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, and I'm quoting from Matthew 5.10, I'm thinking about the, the Beatitudes, blessed are you, and so forth. And notice again, as I quote from these Beatitudes, the connection with, the close connection with this passage in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, they're going to look at you, and they realize that you feel blessed when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, that you respond with joy, that you could count, be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name, as it was said of the, of the apostles in the first few chapters of, of the book of Acts. And so they're going to say, what kind of hope enables a man to rejoice in the face of persecution? Or because you consider yourself blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of your faithfulness to Christ, as you are rejoicing in this matter, as you're considering yourself blessed 
the people around you are going to be asking, what kind of a hope enables such a response? Because the thought of your reward in heaven causes you to be glad and rejoice. And again, people are thinking, how on earth could a person give up everything on earth for a hope in heaven? And they're wondering about it. And because you love your enemies, and because you bless those who curse you, and then you pray for those who persecute you, I'm thinking of Matthew 5, 44, because of this, they're going to be asking themselves, what is it that this person has got hold of? What's in their life that causes them to have such hope? And so, if you live this way, people are going to ask you about your hope. Now, they'll probably wait until they don't think anyone else is listening, but then they're going to whisper in your ear, what is it, man, that keeps you going? How on earth do you continue to live the way you're living in the face of what you're enduring? They're asking you about the hope that you have. So the question, the second question then is, what will you say when they ask? Now, I think each of us needs to be able to give the answer in our own language, but I do want to give you a suggested answer, if I may. What will you say when they ask you about the hope? Obviously, you need to give a reason for your hope. That's exactly what Peter says. Give an explanation, a defense. Be prepared to defend your faith before them. What if you said something like this? It'll vary from person to person, depending upon the time, the circumstances, all these things. Your answers will vary. But here's a suggested answer. My life and all my expectations are anchored in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah and my Lord and Savior. He's the son of David by actual genealogical records. Remember when uh, it was at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD that the genealogical records that have been so carefully preserved throughout the history of Judaism, carried to Babylon, brought back to Jerusalem, those genealogical records disappeared in uh, the time of the destruction of the city. But it was based on those genealogical records that both Matthew and Luke were able to trace Jesus' heritage back to Abraham and back to the first man, back to Adam. And so he is the son of David by actual genealogical records. And by his resurrection, he was proven to be the son of God. It's Romans chapter 1, verse 4. As Messiah, he's the fulfillment of 1,500 years of Old Testament prophecy. Now, the prophecies went back before 1,500 years, but I'm thinking about the dates when the approximate date when Moses would have penned Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so forth. So as Messiah, he's the fulfillment of 1,500 years of Old Testament prophecy, all of which came true. And you know what? Fulfilled prophecy means I can trust the Bible to be the very word of God. All God's promises are true in Christ. And because I have Christ, all his promises are true to me as well. The Bible explains how Christ's atoning death paid for the sin of the world so that by faith in him, my life can be accepted in God's beloved son. Because God has given me the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption, I'm enabled to trust with a faith that is beyond belief that I belong to him and my life is safely in his hands and that means I don't have to fight and strive with others for my piece of the heavenly pie. In Christ, I already have it. Even if I'm treated unjustly on earth, I don't have to fight for my rights. Instead, I can trust that justice will someday be satisfied when Christ sits on his great white throne and examines the records of men's deeds. Even though I am saved by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. Still, I am blessed to know that I can actually please God if I live by the ethical, ethical truths that are established by the Ten Commandments and explained throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. But most of all, I want to live a life that reflects the joy and the reality of Christ living in me. Therefore, my whole life is focused on laying up treasure in heaven. In Christ, I'm already richer than Warren Buffett and Bill Gates put together, and someday all of heaven is going to be mine. This is my hope. This is why I live the way I live, because I'm looking forward to a time whenever, whatever I endure, all of my labors, all of my suffering, all of it will be more than worthwhile when I see Jesus face to face and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. As Paul finished up that chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, and we read verse 58 a few weeks ago, therefore be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know that the labor, your labor in the Lord is not in vain, not useless. And that's my conviction, and that's my hope, and that's why I live and stand the way I do. That's the answer. That's the answer.